All right, so I have notes for this one, but not a script. So forgive me if it seems a little bit more stream of consciousy. I'm hoping that it's actually just more conversational and that you're able to track with me. So these are thoughts that I had in considering the text for the sermon that I heard this most recent Sunday, coming from Acts 9, verses 32 to 43, so through the end of the chapter. And they deal with the healing of Aeneas and the raising of Tabitha. And I'm going to break it up into two sections, and here I'm just going to deal with the healing of Aeneas. And like I said, these are thoughts that were catalyzed by the sermon that I heard a couple days ago, actually one day ago, because today's Monday. So I'm going to make a couple references to that, hoping to build a framework to share the thoughts that, thank God, is giving me to share. That always sounds corny coming out of my mouth. Anyway, so to get us started, just the text itself. Now, as Peter, because, you know, we haven't seen him for a little bit, Paul's doing his thing, killing people, getting converted, saving people, you know, 180. But, you know, by the by, Peter went here and there among them all and came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they returned and they turned to the Lord. Alright, so there's a story. That's all we know about Aeneas. Dude's in Lydda. He's been paralyzed for eight years. Peter comes along, sees him, says, Jesus Christ heals you, present tense, rise, make your bed. Immediately it happened. People are like, whoa! And they turn to the Lord. Probably because they're seeing this in tandem with the word that Peter has been preaching as he's been going here and there among them all and even down to the saints who were in Lydda. Alright, so, first reference that the pastor yesterday made, which was really good. He said that miracles are like windows. You don't look at a window. You look through it at something else. A window frames something to put it into your field of sight and helps you see, contemplate, consider, take in, and understand that thing which it frames and that you see on the other side of it. So the question that becomes, if miracles are windows through which to see, what are we looking at? Are we looking at the nature of Christ, of God, at the relationship between the human and the divine? That's the one I'm going to focus on. The pastor hit the nature of Christ, and that was good. My mind went in a little bit of a different direction. None of this is contrary complimentary, maybe. Augustine once said, you know, it's okay that people sometimes have different interpretations of scripture. That doesn't necessarily make someone a heretic. And, you know, it's welcome. It's valid. Multiple things may be true. Alright, so, Aeneas has been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. That's what we see about this guy. And Pastor yesterday mentioned that in the first century context, usually if somebody's been paralyzed, chances are one of two things happened. A, a stroke, or B, he's had some kind of a fall, or I guess there's been some kind of a physical accident 
And it never struck me, but I was like, well, yeah, duh. What paralyzes people? Okay. So one of the things that I thought of is that I wanted to compare this with a similar situation, also involving Peter, actually. A little bit earlier in the book of Acts, where... Yeah, I'm actually flipping through my Bible. In Acts chapter 3, at least in the ESV, they titled that entire chapter, The Lame Beggar Healed. And it is a guy who is sitting, begging for alms, at a gate to the temple, which is referred to as the Beautiful Gate. And Peter looks at him and says something strikingly similar to what he says to Aeneas. Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand, by the right hand, and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. It's very similar to Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. Okay, so this is where it might go a little bit of stream of consciousness. I'm going to do my best to not ramble. Okay, so both of these men were suffering the effects of some kind of a physical ailment. All we know from the guy at the beautiful gate was that he was lame. Maybe he was born gimpy. Not entirely sure. Text doesn't say. We know that Aeneas specifically is identified as paralyzed. Okay, so maybe that's indicating that something did occur. Some kind of a fall that lets him paralyzed. You know, a broken back or something like that. I know a few people that happened to. Or some kind of a stroke which has left him partially paralyzed in part of his body. Okay, whatever. Both of these men are experiencing the effects, the consequences, long-term, of a physical ailment, which is preventing them from living, really, any kind of meaningful or flourishing life. Both are paralyzed. And what struck me is that in Acts chapter 3, The text says, regarding the man at the beautiful gate, that immediately his feet and his ankles, so the specifically broken part, were made strong, and he was therefore able to stand. And so with Aeneas, if he immediately got up, that means that whatever had caused his physical ailment, be it a severed spinal cord, broken discs, um a shattered leg that never healed, a stroke, whatever it was, that thing was healed and the rest of his physical body that had been impaired as a result was made sound, firm, and usable. And he's told to get up and pick up his bed or make his bed. Now, something else the pastor mentioned is that a made bed is essentially an unused Bed. It is a not needed bed. It's a bed that can be put away because you are not going to be in it. You are going to be active. And actually what this reminded me of was the man at the pool at Bethesda in John's gospel in chapter 5. Now here's a guy who's also physically infirm, lying on his mat, and he desperately wants to be healed. Jesus comes along And asks him that very question. Do you want to be healed? 
And after the man gives some excuses, some reasonable and understandable ones, but I'm flying through this. After the man gives some excuses, Jesus basically asks, do you want to be healed? And the guy says, yeah. And so Jesus says, then get up, pick up your mat, and go home. You don't need the mat, because I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore what is specifically broken to make you able to live life fruitfully and, take it a step further, to the service of God. So, he's essentially going to heal what paralyzes you. I'm going to hit that again in a little bit, focusing on specifically what paralyzes you. Another connection the pastor made is that Jesus is sovereign over sickness. Okay, that's true. Not a contradiction, taking it a slightly different tack. Jesus is sovereign over fleshly infirmity. I like being a little bit specific. And most fleshly infirmities, if we're honest... It isn't healed, even for the most sincerely devout disciples. Our fleshly infirmities, the things that are broken with our bodies or with our psyches, they just aren't healed. We may pray and pray and pray and they aren't healed. Even back then in the day, the miracles that Jesus did and that some of his disciples did afterwards, amazing is an understatement. And they're probably, likely, are a number of them that just weren't recorded. Okay, that's possible. But of all the people that could have been healed of similar things, they weren't. And this almost reminds me of what Jesus said to Thomas, something along the lines of, you know, blessed are you because you've seen and believed, but blessed are those who believe without seeing. All right. So, if a miracle is a window, what are we to see? And the thing that I came to is that Jesus makes life in this world possible. He helps, he equips, he guides us to endure, deal with, and overcome the various circumstances and occurrences of life, particularly those which leave behind damage of some sort, which leave us specifically infirm. Now think about that word for a second. Infirm, two roots, in, which is a negative, kind of like non, and then firm, related to the adjective, you know, to be firm, like terra firma, solid, stable, um, strong, even. And so to be infirm is to lack that stability, to lack that strength, to have some kind of a softness or a weakness that makes one less able to do something or completely incapable of doing something. And this brought me back to, let's keep in mind what the goal of life is. Let's wipe everything else away for a second and keep in mind what the goal of life is. The goal of life is a life lived of service unto God. Take that actually back to John the Baptist. A life of repentance. A life lived unto God, lived by faith in the Son of God. Well, faith... That what? Not faith in what, but faith that what? Faith that I may actually live a life that's pleasing to him. Take this over to Hebrews eleven six. Remember those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. How does he reward them? With the grace and mercy to be a good 
and faithful servant. That's what God does. That's what he will heal. He will heal that which specifically paralyzes us, inhibiting us from doing the good works which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're his craftsmanship, and he will craft us as he sees fit for the purposes which he has designed us to fulfill. And so he will grant us what we need to do just that. And his power in this will be made all the more evident by what he sovereignly chooses to leave unaddressed. God be praised for bringing me the healing that allows me to function to his purpose. And God be praised that through his power, through his mercy, he has helped me develop the faith, the confidence, the trust, and the rest to depend upon him to help me endure the things that he doesn't heal. This brings me over to, I'm skipping my notes here. This brings us over to Paul in chapter 12 of Second Corinthians. You know, the thorn thing, that messenger of Satan. You know, let's flip there for a second. Oh, it's on this side of Acts. Romans, Ephesians, Galatians. Ah, there we go. All right. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of, you know, something that God had given Paul, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. A messenger of Satan, the tempter. Hmm. Our own personal cute little VeggieTales serpent sitting there on our shoulder to keep us from being conceited regarding the gifts the healings, the abilities that God has actually granted to us. Maybe take this back to the Gospels. Jesus and uh, two others come down from the mountain after the transfiguration, and they see people trying to cast out, they, well, they see their fellows trying to cast out a demon or an unclean spirit from a boy, and it's not working. And chances, I mean, these guys have seen Jesus do this. They're probably saying or doing similar things. They know the power of God. Jesus responds, this kind can only be driven out by prayer. And so the general theory that I've heard is that these men, well-meaning as they were, had forgotten that this power comes from God. And it's not simply a tool to be used. He is a God to be relied upon. He is a God to be sought and to be besought. And they forgot that. Chances are, possibly. So, we have these messengers of Satan. These temptations. That can help us, or hinder us, rather, from striving towards the goal of life. which is a life lived unto God. So back to my notes, I guess, a bit. Uh, those messengers of Satan, those tempters, which tempt us towards grumbling, complaining, self-medicating, self-pity, vindictiveness, envy, malice, jealousy, anger, disdain, 
some of these things God will leave, at least to a degree, so that we may continually seek his face. And that reminds me of Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. I wasn't planning on flipping through my Bible for this, but here we go. All right, for Samuel, Judges. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. reason why that strikes out is because God left messengers of Satan, tempters. Are these... Is the next generation of Israelites going to learn to be dependent upon God for their healing, their strength, what allows them to go, but also what allows them to sit and endure? Or are they going to forget him? Remember, the first attack on the city of Ai failed because the people of Israel didn't seek the Lord. When they sought the Lord and his actual method, then Ai fell. And the Israelites were successful. So he leaves these things for us, that we might know war, that we might know endurance, patience. Because in all of that, God's power is shown forth. Possibly even more more in a, what? Wow, kind of a way. And we're amazed at the person who's cured of cancer miraculously. Probably even more amazed by the one who, like Paul, said, I have learned, learned to be content in all circumstances. The one who has, who can smile, be joyful. who recognizes that God may not choose to heal this, but praises his goodness, has a softness, a tenderness, a patient endurance, the strength of which can only come from God. That's probably, honestly, even more miraculous. And I guess that takes me to my last little correlation This whole situation with Aeneas also reminds me of one of the first paralytic healings, if not the first paralytic healing that Jesus did. And it's the guy that was lowered down through the roof. And Jesus looks at the guy and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Everybody in the house of Pharisees in particular are like, Whoa, hold up. Uh Uh-uh. A, that's a non sequitur. Correlation. Dude got broken legs and you're talking about sins? Dude himself is probably thinking the same thing. If I had to wager, I guess. But Jesus basically looks at the guys and says, what's easier to heal? But that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority to actually do this thing that you can't see? Let me blow your mind by doing the thing that you can. So it brought me back to that question. What's actually easier to heal? Think about it. It's a stroke. The effects of a fall, a leg, an organ in need of a transplant, 
a chemical imbalance in your brain? We can figure those things out. Now, I know not every stroke is healed yet, but basically what's easier to heal? The physical body, which we can see, learn, manipulate, understand, fix. Or is it easier to heal anxiety, insecurity, envy, jealousy, cold indifference, apathy, despondency, self-centeredness, self-righteousness? What actually hinders service to the Lord? Physical paralysis or non-physical paralysis? But that you may know that the Son of Man can do these other things just once, maybe twice, because that's all he needs to do. He'll do this other thing. So he heals the man physically. So as to prove, he does the easy thing. So as to prove that he can actually do the harder thing. Swinging it back to me, God is healing my anxiety. He is making me more confident and able better to function both around people and on my own. He heals what paralyzes me to his good service. And consequently... Wow, consequently, there it is, I'm able to actually do much. I have grown into by no means a perfect, but I think soberly, soberly and fearfully, a better servant, capable of identifying, discerning, doing those things which it is he has set before me to do, the people to love, which is not easy. Not because they're unlovable, because it's hard for me to love. And see 1 Corinthians 13. How often did any of us approach situations and people like that? So yeah, the people he's given me to love and the things that he has given me to do, it's my anxiety. It's my codependency my distractedness, it's my insecurity, it's my emotional volatility. These are the things that paralyze me. The things that tempt and draw to various desires that become sins that so easily entangle. There's the mat. But Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. Make your bed. You don't need the mat. Because what needs to be healed for you to be to his good service, he will heal. And what doesn't need to be healed? I'll say that phrasing again. What doesn't need to be healed? Like this other issue I have, a deeply personal one, one that causes pain and frustration, that is a tempter to sin and a tester of my faith... This one, though addressed, God has left unhealed as of yet. He is not removed like Paul. So what do I do? Well, I make the decision that Eve should have made all the way back in the garden. 
I don't know why. I don't need to know why. And it doesn't inhibit me from following God's direction and commandments. It doesn't stop me from pursuing from pursuing His righteousness. I wanted to say something about the Ten Commandments. It doesn't stop me from not envying my neighbor. It causes... It doesn't stop me from not stealing. It doesn't stop me from idolatry. I don't need that fully healed. And in fact, it's probably the greater testimony to God's mercy, to His very existence and His goodness. If He teaches me how to be content, how to be patient with it. Something that struck me that I thought was pithy. You know, going back to Job, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, but the Lord also withholdeth. And that's good too. Because in that, we can still see a sort of strengthening. The stuff he doesn't heal also heals our infirmities. Alright, I hope that was trackable. I hope I haven't lost you or bored you. I hope that was helpful. And yeah, I guess I'll see you later.